When we look at toys, objects, machines, modes of transportation, there's often something very small that controls all of it. There's often something little in comparison to the whole that determines its direction. What determines the direction of a car? The average weight of a car is about 4,000 pounds. Cars are these big, heavy machines. Yet the direction of a car, which way it's going to go, right or left, is determined by a steering wheel. If you think about a ship, we could say the rudder uh, determines where it's going to go. And the point is, is that big, complex machines can be controlled by something small. And my question is, Scripture tells us, and you probably already know the answer to this question, but there's something relatively small in comparison to the whole that controls humans. What is it that the Bible says determines a person's actions? That's what we're going to look at today. Last Two weeks ago now, uh, we looked at the conversion of the Philippian jailer. In chapter 16, it ends with the leaders in Philippi. They're worried because they had beaten Paul and Silas. And they were worried because they found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And so, when they find this out, they quietly go to the jail, the rulers of the city go to the jail, they take Paul and Silas, and they ask them to quietly just leave the city, just move on. And that's where we are in our text. So they leave the group, uh, the group leaves from Philippi, and they go to Thessalonica. Look at verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they're in Thessalonica, and they go to a synagogue, and they're there for three weeks. Paul teaches people at the synagogue about Jesus for three weeks. And notice, look at verse 2, that it's on the Sabbath. It says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. I want to say Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they were not celebrating the Sabbath. They were using the Sabbath as an opportunity to teach because the Sabbath was a time when the Jews were already gathered together. What was the Sabbath? The Sabbath, we talked about the temple before. The temple is sacred space. The Sabbath 
is sacred time. It's a symbol. In eternity, we will have never-ending spiritual rest with God, provided by God. And the Sabbath was that eternal rest that we will have with God brought for one day into the present. When Jesus came, faith in him brought us the spiritual Sabbath rest. In the midst of a bunch of texts, you go to the Gospels, in the midst of a bunch of texts about the Sabbath, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Faith in him is the Sabbath. It's what the Sabbath was pointing to. Resting in Jesus. So this group in our text, they've come to realize this. They don't celebrate the Sabbath themselves, but they go to the Sabbath, go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day because there's already people gathered around ready and ripe to hear the gospel. What's the content of Paul's teaching? What's he teaching them while in the Sabbath? Look at verse 3. It says explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So essentially they're sharing the gospel. Paul is sharing the gospel. They're teaching about Jesus' death, they're teaching about his resurrection, and they're teaching that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Now, to a Jew, which the Jews are the ones that are hearing Paul teach, it would have been a stumbling block to believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he died to the Romans. They believed that the Messiah would come and defeat the Romans, and so believing that Jesus died at the very hands of the ones he was supposed to defeat meant to them that he couldn't be the Messiah. And so Paul, in his explanation, he would have had to have a, a focus and apologetic that focused on answering this question when talking to the Jews. If Jesus is the Messiah, why did he die to the Romans? What's the response of the crowd? Well, some believed what Paul was teaching. Some believed the gospel. Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and a, not a few of the leading women. That's a very, that's a verse that just mentions in passing that some people did accept it. But this section in verses 5 to 9 in particular are really about the persecution and rejection of the gospel. Look at the persecution in verse 5. It says that they took some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set in the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the reaction 
of the majority is to go attack, to go persecute. And it says they attacked the house of Jason. It seems like something just randomly thrown out there in the text. Who is Jason? Jason allowed Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke to stay at his house. And if you look at verse 7, it says, And Jason has received them. That's the accusation against him. And so... This mob, this violent mob, they're angry at what Paul's been teaching in the synagogue for three weeks. And so they decide, we're going to get together, we're going to get be violent, and we're going to go to the house of Jason and pull them out so that we can bring them to the rulers. Similar things keep popping up in Acts. Every city they go to, similar things just keep happening. But we find out that when they get to Jason's house, they're not there. So what they did is they brought Jason himself and some other Christians and they brought them in front of the authorities and look at the accusation they made against these Christians. Verse 6 and 7. It says, When they could not find them, that is Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is so often overlooked by pastors. What's the accusation? Well, at the heart of the accusation is saying that these people, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, they are attacking Caesar by claiming there's another king, Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more than a message about how God saved humanity. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. That's the heart of the gospel. But the gospel is also a political statement that says Jesus, not Caesar, not the U.S. president, is king of the world. And that is the story that Acts tells. Paul keeps confronting people in Peter in in Acts 1 to 9. They just keep Uh, They keep going in front of these authorities and they keep pronouncing that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king of the world despite the people they're talking to, not the people they're talking to. So story Acts tells. What is the climax of Acts, by the way? The climax is that Paul goes to Rome in chains and he's being judged. So he's in Rome. He's in the vicinity of Caesar And he tells them that Jesus is king, not Caesar. So Acts moves from these smaller authorities, the ones in Jerusalem, then to the surrounding area. And then finally it ends with him in the capital itself saying that Jesus, not Caesar, is king. And so... Our text should perplex us because the Jews wanted a Messiah that would defeat the Romans. 
And yet, in our text, we have Jews complaining to authorities that they're saying, Jesus, not Caesar, is king. They wanted a Jew to take Caesar's place. They didn't care if Caesar was dishonored or that he had a rival. So why would they complain that Paul and the others are teaching this against Caesar? Why do they even care? If you go back up to verse 5, we get the answer. It says the Jews were jealous. So at the root of this mob that they created, at the root of their rebellion, and accusing them before the rulers is a jealous heart. Just as we talked about how a steering wheel directs a car, the heart has determined that they will rebel. The heart has determined that they will create a mob. The heart here has determined that they will drag them before the authorities. And if you're a Jew, and you're in front of Gentile leaders, people who are ruling under Caesar, you know that if you want to get these Christians in trouble, you need to demonstrate how Jesus is a threat to you. And so by saying that Jesus is the true ruler of the world, a claim in opposition to Caesar, if the rulers tolerated that claim, if they let Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy keep teaching that claim, they were in danger of being killed by the Roman armies, by the Roman soldiers being executed. Essentially, what the Jews do when they take these men in front of the authorities, what they're doing is they're showing how Jesus attacks their idol of comfort, peace, and safety. So threatening to take away a person's idol, comfort and safety, that the Romans won't kill us, that leads to their persecution. A lot of people here have kids, and I imagine most of you, most of your kids, have at one time or another had a favorite toy. Maybe there's a doll, maybe it's something else, Maybe they, something that they just play with constantly. What would happen if you took that toy away? The child would throw a fit and probably maybe even call you names. They would be angry. They would have hate in their heart toward you. And we are all like that, but we are more sophisticated in the ways that we respond when somebody threatens our idols. 
our culture, our family, our friends will attack us when we let them see that Jesus confronts their idols. And you know this is true. Talk to somebody about the way that Jesus loves them and everything is great. But the second, and they even think to themselves, yes, Jesus loves me, that's convenient, I love myself. But talk to them about how Jesus wants them to repent of their sin, repent of an affair, and see how they react. They'll hate the message and they'll hate you. Jesus is great to almost everyone until you tell them about how Jesus wants them to give up their sin. And it's the same with us. Even after we come to faith, our love for the world, our love for materialism and other things, these sins begin to retake the throne of all of our hearts. And when we have a brother, a sister, a spouse, someone come to us and say, you know, I think you might be liking this too much. I think you might be indulging in this too much. How do we respond? Just like the child having their toy being taken away, we get defensive and we start attacking. What idols have you allowed back in your life? Go to Jesus, confess your sin, pray to be washed and forgiven. Pray for God to renew your hearts once again. So we've seen that when people confront an idolatrous, jealous heart with Jesus, the response to Jesus is persecution. The response to the people given the message is persecution. But what about a soft heart? As we go in our text, we see that they come to another location. The first clause of verse 10, it says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And so once again, we see this pattern of them going to a location and then entering a synagogue. And without Luke even having to write about it, they share the gospel in Berea. But here we see a different response than we saw in Thessalonica. Look at verse 12. It says, Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that they believed in Berea but not in Thessalonica? We get several clues in our text. Look at verse 11. The first thing he says is that the people in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What does that mean? 
In this context, what's being said is that I think he's saying that they had a higher sense of morality. They were more sincere in their listening. And we can see that sincerity working out in a couple of ways. Look again at verse 11. It says, they received the word with eagerness. Now we use eager, eagerness, the word eager in all kinds of different contexts. We say the children were eager to go play. The mom was eager to go out for the evening. The man was eager to go to a gun show. Eager means to have a strong desire. And something that accompanies it, it, eager doesn't denote, but it connotes excitement and enthusiasm. And that's how the Bereans, Bereans were presented here. They were excited, they were enthusiastic, and they desired to receive the good news of the gospel. And look again at verse 11. It says, They examined the scriptures daily to see if what they were saying is true. So they listened to the gospel with eagerness, and they would go, after they've heard the gospel, they would go home, maybe all week, and they would read the Old Testament in light of what they had just heard from the gospel. And they wanted to see if it all added up. And if you think about it, there are many places in the Old Testament that would have started making a lot more sense after you've heard the gospel. The suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, where he gets a blow and it's going to forgive the sins of Israel, but he's also a king at the same time. That would have came together in the person of Jesus and would have made sense for no one else. Reading the Old Testament, what they were doing, read the Bereans, they were reading the Old Testament in light of Jesus, that would have met, started making a lot of things click, a lot of things come together. The last few verses, well, before we get there, if we had to describe the way that the Bereans acted towards hearing the gospel, if we had to describe their sincerity, at the root of that would be a genuine soft heart. The last few verses in this section tell us what happened after they believed. So the Jews from Thessalonica, you remember the the last section we were on, the Jews from Thessalonica hated these four so much that they traveled to Berea and they continued their persecution. I'm just going to read verses 14 to 15 so you can see that for yourself. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they, re- they departed. What we've seen in this section is that a soft, sincere heart responds favorably 
to the gospel. When I was in school, there were days that I'd be very motivated to understand the content. I'd follow along, I would take notes, and then I'd go read more about the topic after class was over. And when that happened, I knew that I had learned the subject, the content, more deeply and more robustly. It was with this eagerness to learn the content, this strong desire, that what led me to understanding the content at school more. And it's very rare, I've shared the gospel with a lot of people in this town, and it's very rare for me to run into someone that's eager to hear the gospel, like the Bereans were in our text. But if they are, if they are eager to hear the gospel, then we know that that's obviously the ideal state for them to be in. And it demonstrates that they have a heart that is ripe to hearing the gospel. My question to you is, what condition is your heart in right now? Even though this is talking about the conversion of the Bereans after we come to faith, it's still true that the state of our hearts determined what we're, determine what we're going to get out of the Bible or not. I remember in seminary, one of my professors, he used to say that one of the keys to understanding scripture, one of the hermeneutical principles you need to have, and this isn't something you usually read about in a textbook, but he said, what will help you understand the text is posture. He's not talking about the way that you sit up straight or the way that you're sitting. He's talking about coming to the word of God with the correct attitude. One pastor I've heard said, he said there's so many members in the churches today that complain that they're not getting fed when the actual problem is many of these members aren't actually coming hungry. Are you eager to receive God's word? Do you desire it? Does it excite you? Listen to these passages from scripture that describe how our hearts determine our actions. Proverbs 4 says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Listen to Jesus in Luke 6. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, the heart is at the foundation for our decisions. The heart determines what we do. The heart determines what we say and how we're going to respond to the gospel. So if you hear this, you see the response from the 
those in Thessalonica who rebelled because of a jealous heart. You see the response of the Bereans who believe because of a sincere, eager heart. And you're asking yourself, what can I do to have this heart? What can I do to have a soft heart that responds to Scripture so that I can grow as a disciple? In one sense, you can't do anything. The hard soil of a hard heart is broken up only by the great cultivator, the Holy Spirit. And so in one sense, there's nothing you can do, but in another sense, you can put yourself in God's means of grace, the graces that he uses to soften people's hearts. Only God will soften the heart, but you can put yourself in a position to be softened, softened, if that makes sense. One is prayer. God uses the means of prayer to soften our hearts. Ask him to open your eyes to see the glory of Jesus before you go to scripture. Proverbs says, uh, he says, open my eyes, and maybe it's the Psalms, but open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. And I think we should echo that prayer. You can also meditate on the word of God. That's another means God uses to soften hearts. Memorize treasure up scripture. If we remain faithful and we put ourselves in the position using God's means of grace, God will eventually use those means to soften our hearts. If you're here today or are listening in and you're not sure about believing in Jesus, I pray that you'll consider it this morning. You, like me, like everyone else sitting in these pews, are a sinner. And because of your sin, my sin, we are all headed for eternal destruction. If you were to die today, you would end up in eternal destruction conscious torment. But this Jesus who we've been talking today, because of his life, death, and resurrection, and in his death on the cross, taking your, the place of, uh, place of you, and taking your sins, the punishment for your sins upon himself on the cross, because of that salvation, because of what he's done, you can be forgiven. The Bible says repent and believe and you can be forgiven today. Let's pray. Father, 
I pray that as we go to your word every day this week, we know that if we have a hard heart, nothing will come of it. If we have a jealous heart, we will be angry. We will rebel. So I pray that you would make us like the Bereans, that you would soften our heart, make us eager to hear your word, eager to grow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.